Welcome to the Venture 12 podcast, conversations to engage and inspire missional people. to the Venture 12 podcast. We are here giving you episode 10 of season 2 and my name is Emma. I'm here with Chris. Hello everybody. How are you doing today? Uh, Yeah, I'm doing uh, well, I think. Excited to bring this podcast actually. It's one that I've been looking forward to doing. Yeah, Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit of a blast from the past for me to listen to the podcast in preparation for recording this yeah. actually it feels like I listened to this person when I was in a completely different place in my life in my uh, early 20s I think yeah so it's a bit like listening to 90s music yeah. well, <laughs> I hope that's not offensive to no, I'm sure the it's person not. in question I'm sure it's not and you'll, you'll have seen by the title that uh, we're interviewing Shane Claiborne today um, and like Emma said, someone, and I mentioned it to him as well, that kind of like grew up hearing him at like these big Christian events we were at and all those kind of things and reading books and stuff. So I understand. But you saying that listening to 90s music, we uh, had a team retreat day about a month ago, didn't we? And we, we were, we said, we got the guitar and the piano and we just thought, right, let's sing some worship. And we didn't know what to sing. So we said, all right, this is 90s worship session. So we rolled back the years, <laughs> yeah, didn't we? we? Did. And brought back some classics. I mean, I I think because we said that that was what we were going to do, it was fine. I think it's worse when church kind of doesn't acknowledge the fact that they're going back in time with worship <laughs> that it gets really bad. Yeah. You just turn up and you're brought back to the yeah. 80s or the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I quite enjoyed that, actually. Yeah. And I found that the more we sang, I don't know, you know, like when you listen to old C- CDs, you just kind of know the next song that comes. Mm. Have you had that before? I've had, oh, yeah. I, I used to listen to the Michael Jackson album, Bad, like... 30 times a day when I was young and it was almost as though the songs rolled into the next so when one of the songs came to an end I could just start singing the next one straight away yeah. and it's like that when we were doing our worship one one came to an end and I was like I know what comes next <laughs> <laughs> even though it wasn't on a CD or something I just kind of knew the rhythm that it would have happened if it was in the church yeah yeah, yeah we definitely don't want to do that every Sunday that's for sure but no. yeah good sometimes it's good sometimes and Saying that it's a blast from the past listening to Shane Claiborne is obviously not the whole truth because what he talks about is still relevant today and uh, I think he's a prophetic voice still from before for our time so it was refreshing as well to listen to him and some really challenging things that he has to say to us all. We'll come on to that in a bit. Um, in the in the proper introduction of Shane in the interview, but um, what's what's going on with you? Oh, what's not going on with me? <laughs> I mean, it's such a stressful time uh, at the moment. I work in anti-trafficking and the crisis in the Ukraine, the war, the invasion, the refugee flow of people through Europe means that there's a lot of people being trafficked, which is what happens when there's a war. Um, so yeah, so I'm finding myself in lots of conversations about that and uh, trying to prepare 
um, in different ways for, for, for different areas that I'm working in. Um, and yeah, it's just a horrific situation, I think. And obviously we're not, we're not that close to the Ukraine, not too far, but not that close. So there's other countries that are um, receiving a lot more refugees, clearly, than we are. But it's still a significant amount of people coming in every day. Mm. Um, so as a missional community, we're trying to, trying to prepare and respond in a, in a helpful way to the people who, who need support coming from the war zone. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's just important to acknowledge that, I think, as well. We're going to put this out uh, within the next couple of days, so we'll still very much be in the uh, middle of uh, this crisis um, and the war. But I mean, listeners in the future, this is the context for this interview today, that we're in the kind of um, bang in the middle, or we don't know if it's the middle, but we're in this this is the, the the big thing in the world at the moment the russian yeah. invasion on in the ukraine and it's something that shane talks about in the interview as well which is really helpful to kind of look at what's the christian response to that and how do we go about bringing peace and um stand up for non-violence and against oppression and stuff so so it's stuff that's addressed but it's just important to acknowledge that as well at the beginning um that this that's the context of our day and and of our world and everything that's going on at the moment mm. yeah yeah, so we are looking forward to bringing you this podcast yeah. In, now, and then we'll see you after. Yeah, stick around afterwards and we'll uh, put some questions to you and have some reflections as we do. everybody to the Venture 12 podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Shane Claiborne. Hi Shane. Hey, good to be with you. Yeah, and uh, before we get started and uh, I get you to perhaps do a, a semi-brief introduction of yourself, I just want to say that we're really, really grateful for your time. Um, I've grown up um, listening to your talks and reading your books and stuff and and I, I mean a lot of people write a lot of interesting things um, and interesting is one thing but uh, I think something that the general consensus would be about uh, experiencing you and your experiences and your writings is that people leave kind of changed it's not just interesting it's kind of you can't just put a book down of yours and carry on going I mean it, it mm. transforms stuff um, so just really grateful that you're giving us your time um, and oh totally well I'm thrilled to hear what's going on over there I know uh, you know every place has its challenges and its opportunities. And so I, it's, it's beautiful to hear the things that are stirring up in uh, your world over there in Sweden. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of the conversation. And, uh, you know I, know, I know all the people who their books, you know, really shaped me and their messages. And, um, and so it, it's just always a humbling thing to know that you know when you write and talk you have the opportunity to speak truth into someone else's life so it means a lot man thank you yeah absolutely uh well let's just start um could you just give like i said a semi-brief i don't want you to rush because you've got so much that's happened and things that have shaped you but maybe just give us a bit of a, a background of uh your, your upbringing and your maybe your significant moments on your faith journey what you're burning for uh those kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm 
46 years old now. How about that? So mm -hmm. I'll, um, I'll try to do a, a brief snapshot or two, but mm -hmm. yeah, I grew, I grew up down South in Tennessee. Uh, that's why I've got my charming Southern accent and, you know, it's the Bible belt, what we call it, you know, here in the U S um, there's kind of churches everywhere. And, and yet the, you know, it's, it's, it's there that I really fell in love with Jesus. And I began my spiritual quest uh very authentically but i also began to see a lot of the contradictions you know in the church and i mean it's no coincidence that the bible belt is also the former belt of the confederacy the slate you know the states that held on to slavery the longest there's still a lot of segregation and um, the residue of racism is still real everywhere but especially i think you know in in those southern states um but but I, um, you know, I, I began to really embrace Jesus and 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 that's ironically what put me at odds with um, some of the things that I heard in the church. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, uh, and um, and but I, but I really loved Jesus. And so I kept leaning in despite some of the um, the contradictions that I saw. And I ended up studying sociology up in Philadelphia. And I like how Karl Barth, one of the you know, great thinkers in the church, he said, we've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other. <laughs> or maybe today you'd say the Twitter feed or whatever, you know, like we need to know what's going on in the world. And we, we can't have our faith just become a, a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the world we live in. Um, you know, uh, heaven is great, but when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he talks about, you know, it coming on earth as it is in heaven. And so I think for a long time, Christians have promised people life after death. Um, and a lot of people are asking, is there life before death? You know, is the gospel relevant to all the brokenness of the world that we see right now? Um, and, and, um, and a lot of them have left the church because they, they see that, you know, as my grandmother said, we're so heavenly minded that we're not much earthly good. You know, we have a gospel that is just so detached from this world. But that's why I love studying sociology. And, and, and the more I read Jesus, you know, I saw that he wasn't just offering this kind of pie in the sky theology or escape from the world. He was talking about unjust judges and widows and orphans and day laborers and wages, you know, and the stuff yeah. of the world that he lived in. Uh, so I, um, you know, I was studying all that in university. And then what really happened was in the middle of my college years, a group of homeless mothers moved into an abandoned Catholic church in Philadelphia. And they started living there and they had nowhere to go. And these were uh, moms and children, homeless families. And uh, they hung on the banner, uh, hung this banner on the front of the cathedral that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Mm -hmm. wow. And that, that was really um, a, a, a very transformative moment for us. Uh, we organized a student solidarity movement with those families. And that was kind of my second, you know, conversion or my second baptism to, to really think about issues of justice and homelessness and poverty and to connect those to my faith. And, and of course, you know, it was in, in like literally in the ruins of this old abandoned cathedral where I also, you know, much later got married and, you know, it's around the corner from where our community is now. But, um, 
we started reading about the early church in the book of Acts. And, um, you know, in many ways, you, you see a, a version of church that's very different from what many people see today. You know, it wasn't mega church, it was micro church. You know, it was lived out of dinner tables and living rooms. And the early Christians shared everything that they had. They put their their church offerings at the feet of the apostles, and it was distributed to folks who were in need. Um, and so we, you know, we began to do that. We began to try to live in that spirit of the early church to share money together. And we, you know, moved in and bought a house. And over the years, we built a, a little village there on the north side of Philadelphia and uh, been at it for 25 years now. And there's been all kinds of things that have happened along the way. You know, I ended up um, working with Mother Teresa and the, in, in the missionaries of charity, her nuns in India. And that was very formative for who we are. Um, I went to Iraq during the invasion and the war there to, to try to take a stand against the war. We've done a lot of work around racial justice, police violence, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff, the environment we're trying to, right now we're, you know, trying to grow community gardens, we're painting murals, we're, uh, one of our newest projects um, is inspired by the prophets, Mike and Isaiah, when they, they talk about beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. And so we're taking guns uh, off the street and we're melting them down and transforming, transforming those guns into garden tools and art. And so um, it's, it is symbolic, but it's also, I think, very prophetic in the sense of um, proclaiming that the world can be different. You know, we don't have to lose a hundred lives to guns every day in our country. We don't have to just sit back while another war in, you know, ensues in the Ukraine. Like we, we want to be people who are committed to peace. And so we're um, this weekend, literally, uh, you know, we'll be taking uh, guns and, and transforming them into garden tools um, in Philadelphia. Wow. And the, uh... Yeah, it's, there's, there's so much that you've got in and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to some of the points that you've just said, I think, and dig into them. Um, uh, but if we start, I mean, talking back to about the church, you sent Ed's right, uh, the, the first church with the, uh, the solidarity movement with the um, with the mothers. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? What happened and, and just maybe tell the story? It's in the book Irresistible Revolution as well. But uh, if you could just explain a bit what happened for the listeners. Yeah, so I mean, you know, going back to Karl Barth, reading the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other, what happened is we literally saw it in the newspaper. One of my friends, I'll never forget it, you know, we're in the cafeteria in, in our college, you know, uh, and he threw this newspaper down and said, look at this. And the headline article um, said church resurrected, you know, and I mean, I think there's all kinds of layers of, you know, symbolism there, but it, it talked about how these, you know, there's so many abandoned churches, Um and these families had nowhere to go and they moved into it and there were 3000 families on the waiting list for housing you know so it showed all that but then uh, what the story ended with was really heart-wrenching it said that the catholic church uh had given them an ultimatum that if the families weren't out within two days they could be arrested uh, and it, they, they were given this eviction notice and told by the Catholic Church that they were trespassing. And uh, I, I'll never forget what the families did. You know, they held this press conference and they said, we mean no disrespect to the Catholic officials, uh, but we've talked to the real owner of this building. 
uh, <laughs> the Lord. <laughs> we we prayed about it, There's and God said we can stay. You know, yeah. and, and God said we can stay, and so they stayed. Uh, and that's really when we got involved. You know, as good you know young evangelical Christians, we did what came natural, which was we had a prayer meeting that night. But then there's kind of those moments where, you know, you throw your hands up at God and you say, God, do something. And you sort of hear God say back, I did do something. I made you, you know, get down there. And that's what happened. Like literally we got up off of our knees in that prayer meeting and we went down and we got involved and our lives had never been the same since. And there were all kinds of things that happened. You know, it was a the, the media was instrumental because they they were telling this story and uh, it didn't make the church look good. You know, they made it look like the church was kicking homeless people out. And that's because the church was kicking homeless people out of an abandoned church. Like this wasn't even the operational building, you know. And um, so uh, the, the you know, they they played dirty sometimes. They got the fire marshal involved and said, you know, they're break. You know, this is a liability, you know, all this. And so I'll never forget. Uh, really late at night one night there was a knock at the door and there were these firefighters outside and we were a little startled you know we thought they came to kick everybody out and we said listen you know very defensively we said could you please come back tomorrow the kids are asleep you know and i was i was there at the time and uh, they said um now listen um we're not here to kick you out we know what's happening and it's just not right so we want to work with you and help you get ready because there are some visitors coming tomorrow that are going to be checking, you know, inspection. So they said, you know, we have to have fire extinguishers and exit signs. So we worked all night mm -hmm. and these firefighters helped us. I think they were like angels, you know, firefighters disguised, you know, angels disguised as firefighters. And we worked all night. And the next day the fire marshal came, you know, and he walked through the building and he goes, not bad. You know, he goes, I'm not kicking them out. So he, you know, it, but it really felt like, um, there's a place where the scripture talks about principalities and powers. Mm -hmm. And growing up, I thought about that as spiritual warfare and angels and demons. And, and I, I think there is an element of that. But I think really um, what the scripture is trying to name is that there are forces at work, um, sometimes through bureaucratic structures that are really crushing people's lives. And those, you know, principalities and powers, and it even says the authorities of this world, um, uh, are, are, are hurting people sometimes. And it's our job to disrupt, you know, those, those structures that are hurting people. And so out of that, man, I mean, there's a million things that happen, but many of those families got housing. I mean, folks saw it on the news and bought houses, all kinds of compassion really surfaced. Um, and, and for many Catholics, they rose up and there were, listen to this, there were Catholic nuns and priests that went to the archdiocese building and said, this is wrong. And they they did a prayer service and they they called it an exorcism. And they literally were not joking. They they really were praying against those principalities and powers. And they were arrested. <laughs> they were like Catholic nuns arrested by the Catholic Church. It was awesome, man. So uh it was a wild time. And um, and so yeah, that that was just absolutely formative for me. Yeah, but and, I mean, as you say, that transformation, that's all those big things happening, the firefighters and the nuns and the arrests and the <clears throat> millions of people getting housing and all that kind of stuff. But that comes from something that you talk about in the book as well. Forgive me, I can't remember who, who says the quote, but something about 
Uh, we, we focus too much time on trying to understand the things we don't understand in the Bible and not enough time doing the things that we do understand in the Bible, like not enough time living it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually think it was Mark Twain uh, that said that originally. It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that disturb me, but the parts of the Bible I do understand, you know, and, and that's what for me, I read Jesus saying, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Yeah. You know, love your enemies. Uh, don't don't store up for tomorrow but live like the lilies and the sparrows you know tomorrow's got enough worries of its own and i mean it's a really radical way of life prescribed in the gospel this um, abandonment of material possessions this commitment to love and nonviolence. and um in some ways you know i really love what gandhi said when because he read the sermon on the mount regularly and in, in, in when Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi was asked about Christianity, he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. <laughs> and, and so for me, I think and for many of us, we began to long for a Christianity that looked like Jesus again, that was known for love again. And for many people, Christianity Christians are known more for who we've excluded than who we've embraced more for what we're against than what we're for. And Jesus said that, that, that they will know that we are Christians by our love. So that's what we've been after, you know, is, and, and we, oh, we fall short of that all the time, but we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said and for love to be at the center of everything we do. Um just picking up as well you just spoke about selling things you have and giving it to the poor and, and doing it with others doing it in community um what would you call it would you call it a collective that you lived in in uh, you tell a story about your time in was it kensington as well where you, you moved and bought the house as you were mentioning earlier and kind of entered into this kind of like way of living with with others can you, can you tell us a little bit about that what what was it how did it work where was the fruit what was the mission of, of your guy's house and how, how did that live out in action? Well, uh, you know, again, seeing these families share so powerfully together. I mean, they were sharing food. They were sharing everything, you know, uh, 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 you know, I, and, and they, they inspired us. But we were also looking at the early church and how it says they shared everything in common. And then we began to see uh, uh, contemporary communities that were living in that spirit. Of course, I lived with mother Teresa and, and the nuns in Calcutta and I mean that's a pretty extreme version of the monastic life you know yeah. living I mean mother Teresa is said to have had pretty much all of her possessions could fit in a box you know yeah. <laughs> I've got a little bit more than that these days but you know but we were trying to hold things loosely you know and we were trying to live uh with that freedom of the lilies and the sparrows and we saw we saw like the catholic worker movement and all of these different community movements that had happened um, and, and we began to visit them every year for a while, we would go as a community to visit another community that had been around longer than we had and, you know, pick their brains and ask them questions. But I think what we see in scripture is that th there's this common thread of community that we are made in the image of God, who God reflects community, you know, Father, Son, Spirit, the Trinity, or the, you know, the, that we are made in that image. And when God makes the first human, uh, God says, it's not good for them to be alone, you know, and we're, we're meant to live in, together. 
And you see that modeled all through scripture. I mean, Jesus lives in community. He sends the disciples out in pairs. He says, wherever two or three of you gather in my name, I'm with you. So there's this sort of call to community that we've lost in a lot of ways that uh, in, in, in some cultures, I think there's, there's indigenous cultures, there's other cultures that still have a real deep sense of community. But in a lot of the industrialized world, and especially here in the US, I think we've, um, we've individualized everything. We've created this sort of idol of, of the detached nuclear family or of you know, hyper-individualism. Um, and we even have a, a, a um, holiday called Independence Day. You know, yeah. We want to be independent. And yet I think the gospel is calling us to be interdependent, mm -hmm. to not codependent, but to have a healthy relationship with each other, with the land, with you know, uh, uh, those who are suffering in poverty. And in, in, in a lot of ways for the early church, the communion table was a symbol of that, right? That they were all to share together. And uh, it was originally called the love feast, you know, um, for the early church where they would share communion, but they would also share, you know, people would bring food and they would serve a meal together. And uh, if you look carefully at the writing of Paul uh, in Corinthians, he really scolds the early church because there was a point where he said, some people are coming to the communion table hungry and other people are coming to the communion table well-fed. Mm -hmm. And it's a disgrace um, because we are family and no one should go hungry while someone else has extra food. And in some ways, the communion table itself was a symbol of that. You know, you had bread which is the stable food of, you know, we're all praying this day, our daily bread, but you also didn't just have water. You had wine, which was sort of a, you know, a symbol of luxury or, you know, and, and, and those things come together. And so the early Christians really saw that as we don't have rich and poor, we have family. And that's why it affected how they held their possessions. And I think communion in some ways was one way that that really was uh, sort of codified into the very like DNA of the church, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, I mean, how, you, you kind of, how, how did that look like for, for you in that time though? I mean, were you, you were a selection of people living together, um, focusing on that kind of communi communality, uh, family rather than individualism. I mean, what, what, how did that impact uh, the community? Did, what, what's the difference between that and living in an individual way? Where, where can you see more fruit in the world come from that? <laughs> Well, I don't want to overly romanticize it. There's a quote I had, you know, I've had in my office for a while that says, Lord, I know that I am strong enough to do this alone, but give me the strength to do it together. <laughs> you know, and there's an, you know, there's an old uh, proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. You know, so in, in some ways, it's a choice to live deeper. Um, there's parts of community living, I think, that are really difficult. I mean, we used to joke that uh, it's wonderful to share a car with 10 other people until the car breaks. You know, it's everyone's car until it needs the oil changed and then no one owns the car, you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, I, I went to one community that had shirts that said, everybody wants the revolution but nobody wants to do the dishes. So I think that's where you really get into the nitty gritty of it is, is you know, how do we um, carry the load of responsibility that living together is. Um, but, you know, there's, there's really an invitation, I think, to live um, in a way that makes a lot more sense than the hyper individualistic 
um, model, the American dream, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that the world can't afford the American dream. Um, the earth can't afford the American dream. At one point, the average North American was consuming the same amount as 500 people in parts of Africa, you know? And so this idea of like, we're going to love our global neighbor as ourself, like, like, let's think of a better way to live. Maybe not everybody needs a washer and dryer. Not everybody needs a lawnmower. Not everybody needs a car, you know? So let's figure out ways of sharing. And, um, I think there's one way of living that is kind of, you know, asking the question, how do we accumulate more money, you know, in order to have everything we, we want. Mm -hmm. And another way of living is saying, how do we learn to live off of less um, so that everybody can have the things that they need. And, you know, uh, another of the quotes I have on my wall is to live simply so that others may simply live. Mm -hmm. And I think that idea that we're, um, is, is rooted in scripture that um, uh, there's a proverb that says, give me neither poverty nor riches, for in my poverty, I might be forced to steal. And in my riches, I might forget my God. Mm. It's a beautiful vision, right? Of like that there is enough. As Gandhi said, there's enough for everyone's need, mm. but there's not enough for everyone's greed. So, you know, that that's what we were after. Now, over the years, like we've, you know, we've tried to create tool shares. We're trying to, we have an emergency mind, uh, a fund that we, full, we, we pull money together. So if there's a, a, an emergency, you know, and it's happened over and over that we've, the, the, our corner store was broken into and someone robbed it. Um, and we were able to replace part, a good chunk of what was lost in that robbery. My neighbor's car was vandalized. And we're able to say, hey, there's a bunch of us that, you know, believe in bearing each other's burdens. So here's a check, you know, from a bunch of us Christians that, you know, and, and some of them are Christians, they want to end up joining that collective. So it's a really contagious way of thinking of um, that, uh, you know, I heard growing up, many hands make for light work, you know, uh, uh, but many wallets also make for cheaper rent. And, you know, bearing each other's burdens makes them lighter uh, and more bearable together. So, um, you know, if a, it, when sometimes we get a bunch of big donations and so a, a big moving truck will show up with full of food. And it would take me like three hours to unload it. But, you know, I grabbed 10 people and we're done in, you know, 20 minutes. So I think that's that's kind of the the beautiful model of community and, and there's lots of different sort of levels of, of mystery and beauty to it. Thanks for that. That's a really helpful uh, practical pictures as, as well of how like it could be lived out in community. I mean, I guess it's not easiest, the easiest thing to get the buy-in in the beginning. Uh, it's about forming relationships and going on a discipleship journey before perhaps people start parting with their dollars and and time and things uh, so I guess it's all rooted in community and relationship yeah and in some ways I think we are kind of exercising muscles that have atrophied a little bit and so you don't run a marathon without uh you know working up to it and I, I think in some ways you can fall in love with this romantic vision for community and Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes so powerfully about this. You know, he wrote a wonderful, he wrote many things, but he wrote a great book on community called Life Together. It's one of the first books that we read. And one of the things he says is that the person who's in love with community can destroy community, but the person who loves the people around them will create community, you mm -hmm. know, uh, because of that kind of altruistic commitment. And so it's a reminder that you can't just have a good vision. You got to really 
build relationships with the people around you. And, um, and then, you know, the vision kind of comes out of that. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of communities I've seen as they get going that you, you sort of say, you know, just hit the brakes a little bit, like rather than doing trying to do every meal together, do one meal together a week that is really life-giving and that you know how the dishes are going to get done, you know, and, and figure out ways that people can walk away wanting more rather than sort of burning out, you know, and I, I think that's the challenge is to really begin to find some seeds where community can grow. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and it's also got to be missional. You know, I think the, the most vital communities are not just living in community for their own sake but it's for the sake of something bigger than themselves, you know, and to create spaces of hospitality, like many of the communities we're connected with these days are um, doing hospitality with refugees, you know, uh, folks coming out of Syria or the Ukraine or Haiti. Uh, and, and I think that's really beautiful work, you know? Um, so, yeah. Great. Well, let's move on to, um... You, you've touched on it already and a little bit now as well with refugees and, and war and stuff. Uh, but if we start in kind of like the perhaps the American context, can you tell us a bit about um, beating guns? Uh, you, you've already hinted at, as to what it is and where, where it's come from. But like what, what are the origins? What does it look like? Um, where, maybe even like where, where do you get the guns donated from or do, what are those kind of interactions like? Well, uh, in case you all don't know, you know, we, uh, the folks that are listening in, you know, I, we have a little bit of a problem over here. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, and uh, uh, to be honest, it's, it, you know, it's not funny at all. I mean, we, what happened for us is we saw just too many lives uh, cut short on our, in our neighborhood and in our country. And that became very personal. I mean, we had a young man who was killed on our front step and, um, I just got home and had a bullet hole in the wall of our, our, our place. So it's, um, it's very real um, that we, you know, we have more guns than people in the United States, uh, even though two thirds of Americans live without guns. So there's some folks that are real gun extremists and are stockpiling weapons and our, our country's very unsafe, you know, where there are more guns, there are more deaths, there are more suicides, there are more, um, cases of domestic homicide there. And, and during the pandemic, this has hit a record high. Uh, we, we actually are seeing gun, gun deaths at a rate we haven't seen in 30 years. Um, in my lifetime, man, um, we've had more gun deaths domestically in the U.S. than in all of the wars, all the casualties of all of America's wars combined. So, um, this is a big deal. Um, and it's not just, I mean, I think it's easy for folks, you know, outside the US, you just scratch your head and you can't understand it. But I think there's all kinds of ways that we fetishize violence, that we romantic, like, like we, we have this idea that violence is going to bring change, you know. And Martin Luther King, who's one of my inspirations, he said, we've told the kids in the, in the inner city that violence won't solve their problem. But they ask us, why does our government you've used massive doses of violence to try to change the world. And, you know, I, I, knew, I knew that I could no longer, this is Martin Luther King, I knew, knew that I could no longer speak against the violence in our ghettos without speaking against the violence of my government. Mm. And uh, he um, spoke so passionately against the, 
Vietnam War. He also was a gun owner for a, one, you know, a, a period of his life and began to really realize that we're not going to arrive at peace with the weapons of war, you know, um, and he abandoned, you know, that gun. So I think there's a lot of us that are on this journey of nonviolence. Uh, but for me, it's very much rooted in Jesus. You know, I, I think it's impossible to reconcile violence with the cross, you know, with the fact that <laughs> Jesus said, love your enemies. And it's very difficult to simultaneously love our enemies and prepare to kill them. Um, and, but in, you know, I mean, when it comes to the, the big guns, the U.S., has the biggest stockpile of weapons. I mean, we've got the capacity of 50,000 Hiroshima bombs and we're the only country that's ever used them, you know, on a civilian population. And um, I love that there are many in, people in our country that are outraged at what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, you know, like dropping cluster bombs that are designed to kill lots of people. And yet we also dropped those same bombs just a few years ago in Iraq. Um, uh, and, and, uh, I saw them, you know, I saw houses that were hit with cluster bombs in Baghdad. And, um, and so in some ways I think that, you know, we've got to get the log out of our own eyes, Jesus said. And so we're working at that. And what I love about the image that inspires us from Mike and Isaiah is that it, it is a powerful kind of poetic symbolic thing to turn swords into plows, you know, to transfer, transform metal that was designed to kill into metal that's designed to cultivate life and swords into plows is beautiful. But um, what's also great about that image is that change doesn't come from the top down, but according to the prophets, it comes from the bottom up. You know, the people get tired yeah. uh, of violence and they begin to take things into their own hands and they transform their their weapons into tools, uh, uh, garden tools. And so that, that uh, um, is literally what we've been doing for 10 years. I was taking donated guns. Our first donated gun was an AK-47. So it's just like the guns that we see in the news right now. I mean, I saw it last night, you know, in Ukraine, uh, uh, the AK-47s, that was, that was our first gun. And those are still legal on the streets uh, of the United States. These are weapons of war that are designed to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And that's still what they keep getting used for, you know, in our neighborhoods. And I mean, this is not just uh, rhetoric. I mean, literally a block from my house, we had an AK-47 type weapon that was used um, and, and two people were killed. Many more could have been killed in that incident. So we're done with it. And uh, uh, you know, we're, we're turning them into all kinds of things. Our name, the name that we use for it is raw tools, which is war flipped backwards. Mm -hmm. And uh, if folks want to see some of the images, they can go to rawtools.org. Yeah, that's great. And um, I mean, moving on to maybe more of a, a global picture as well. You've mentioned that you've been in Iraq, um, in Baghdad with the Iraq peace team. Um, and obviously, acknowledging what's going on at the moment with Russia and Ukraine and that travesty and, and um, yeah, other places around the world as well. Um, I mean, what, how, how do we go about, unless we go, as you did to Iraq, I mean, how do we go about forging peace in, in times of war uh, in, a, in a local setting? Is, is that possible? What do we do? I saw, I saw that you tweeted 
um, something a few days ago that was just really, really striking. Just I'm, I'm so glad to see that people in this country are outraged by what's going on in Ukraine. I hope they showed the same uh, level of hospitality when they begin arriving. Um, but but is, is there any other ways that we can think of like, how, how do we be peacemakers or, or standing up for non-violence in this time? Well, absolutely. I, I, for starters, I think we can't we can't just wait for a war to work for peace. <laughs> you know, like uh, we we've got to be uh, doing the work of disarming and defunding militarism and getting rid of nuclear weapons. Um, every that, that's everyday work. You know, and Dr. King said, until we are as organized for peace as folks are organized for war. You know, we're going to continue to see war, uh, uh, you know, get the last word. And so I think we've got to organize ourselves. We've got to figure out what are the companies that are making money off of militarism and war. And there are huge companies, um, Lockheed Martin and Boeing. And, and so we've got to figure out how to divest and, um, and challenge those companies that have a vested interest literally in war. Um, and, and they get subsidies from our government, at least here in the U.S., you know. So um, but I think we've also got to realize that uh, violence is not something we are created to do. It's something that we learn. Mandela said this well, you know, we're not made to hate. We learn to hate. And I think the, the same is true of, of violence, that we we learn violence. We learn it in media. We learn it in video games. We learn it in church sometimes, right? This idea that goes all the way back to Augustine and even before of a that there, there can be just war, that there can be just violence. And I'm thankful for how Pope Francis has been such a voice for peace and, you know, has challenged the just war theory, which I know is, you know, big theological language, but it's basically just saying um, Christians have learned to justify war. And it's time to start unlearning that, that, you know, um, uh, the, the best case that anyone ever had for using violence was Peter. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and he picked up a sword, you know, he pulled his weapon and he ended up hurting a man. He cut his ear off and Jesus scolded Peter and he said, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, put it away. You're, you're done with that, right? Um, and at one point, he even says to Peter, you're thinking with the mind of this world, not the mind of God. And, and then he heals the man that Peter wounded. And the early Christians like Tertullian, they said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. Like if ever there was a case to be made for using violence, even to protect the innocent, right? Um, that, that, you know, Peter had the case. And yet that's what Jesus shows us over and over and over. And haven't we continued to learn that lesson? Live by the sword, die by the sword. I mean, my gosh, you know, so much of what we see is that truth of Jesus that, I mean, Saddam Hussein did not come out of, he, he didn't come out of nowhere. We put Saddam Hussein in power. We, I mean, the 60 Bell helicopters that Saddam used to gas the Kurds came from the United States, right? When I was in Iraq, one of the Iraqi men said, you know that we have some weapons because your country has the receipts. <laughs> you know what I mean? We were literally profiting off of arming both sides, you know, in the Iran-Contra scandal. So, I mean, we, so we've been on this race towards war. 
And it just continues to haunt us. So I think the wisdom as Jesus is that is not naive. I mean, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he lived in a violent world. So when people say, well, you know, Jesus, what, what about ISIS? You know, what about Al Qaeda? You know, um, when Jesus was born, Herod was slaughtering children. I mean, all through his life, he was interacting with the violence of, of the Roman Empire and showing us how to transcend it without mirroring it, right? And that's what I think the what's often called the third way of Jesus, you know, that is neither fight nor flight. It, 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 it's not um, being, you know, just a, a, a rug that people can roll over, but it's also not dealing with violence on its own terms. And of course, of course, we see the pinnacle of that on the cross, as Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So, uh, I mean, Jesus absorbed all the violence in the world in order to subvert it yeah. with love and forgiveness in an empty tomb. And, and so, uh, uh, we've, we've got work to do, you know, um, but it, it's taken us a long time to get in the pit that we're in. And so we can't expect to come out of it for, you know, all of a sudden. Um, I mean, the U.S. and Russia in particular have been on a race towards war for so many years. Um, and, and, you know, there's only a handful of countries that, that own nuclear weapons. Um, and the United States owns half of them. Russia owns, I know, half of them. I think there's only like nine under other countries that have nuclear weapons. So we, we've got to like, we're on the wrong side of history right now when it comes to these weapons that can destroy so many lives made in the image of God. There's just no way that you can justify that as, as a Christian um, or as a person of conscience. So, um, but I think we've got to have courage. You know, uh, we've got to be as willing to die the cross as people have been willing to die for the sword of the bomb. Mm. Well, Shane, look, I know you, you're on time constraints, but I, I just wonder if I could get one more. I mean, it's part of this unlearning the Christian response to these global issues and war that's going on and stuff. I just wonder, as scaling it back now to kind of individual or community or local level, I mean, what, what are some of these practical responses that we can live out practically rather than it, rather than just just praying i've done quotation marks when i said just praying but but i mean what can that look like um in in our how we live in our lives what does that look like in terms of welcoming refugees or what does it that look like in how such we live a, mm. such an important place to land i think you know because we can talk about all these things just war theory and all these you know different things but in the end um mother Teresa. uh had a, a very beautiful thing that she said. She said, we're not called to do great things. We're called to do small things with great love. What's important isn't how much we do, but how much love we put into doing it. And, and that, that's inspired our work, you know, every day to say, we're going to try to do small things with great love. We're going to try to love one person well, you know, we may, and, and I think the beauty is that that's how the world changes. You know, the images that Jesus gives of the kingdom of God are not the cedars of Lebanon, but it's the mustard seed, which was an invasive plant. You know, it was a little plant, a little seed and it, um, yeast and light. The, the images that Jesus gives the kingdom of God, they're this kind of contagion of love and grace in the world. So that's what we're called to be. And it does start small. I mean, uh, the, the final account of um, the judgment, according to Jesus, 
is not just a doctrinal test where we're asked, you know, virgin birth, agree or disagree, or, you know, what do you think about just war theory or whatever, you know, like in the end, we're going to be asked when I was a stranger, did you welcome me in? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was in prison, did you come visit me? That the real um, test of our faith is how it manifests itself in concrete acts of relational love to the most vulnerable people in the world, you know, visiting people in prison, welcoming refugees and, and immigrants. And so um, I'm always careful to say our works don't earn our salvation, but they do demonstrate our, our salvation. They show that, you know, that, that if we are Christians, this is just what we do. And that's my hope is that, um, you know, one of the ways that we can resist war is by welcoming the, the, folks who have suffered from war. And, and if we love Jesus, it should create a different gravity for our lives that instead of moving away from suffering, we lean into it. That's what God does in Jesus. God moves into the neighborhood, is born homeless as a, you know, in a manger, comes from a town where people said nothing good could come, Nazareth, uh, uh, you know, who is is in, in every way marginalized as a refugee. You know, that's how God comes into the world. And so it should give us a special uh, uh, compassion for, for those who are suffering in our world. Uh, it's, it's, and, and a lot of times this is not, I think sometimes our church and, and, and just our, you know, society, our deepest problem is not a compassion problem, but it's a proximity problem it's a relational disconnect, right? It's not that we don't care about the poor. It's that we don't know the poor. And I think that's ultimately what this is about is radically counterculturally growing relationships with people who are, who have been marginalized uh, in this, in this world, that that's really a part of is at the heart of, of our faith is, is to, um, uh, build relationships with those who are hurting, those who Jesus called the least of these, you know, and, and that's, uh, um, yeah, it's a good place to end. Yeah, it is. Well, I just want to say once again, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your experience. Um, listeners, please stick around afterwards uh, and we'll uh, have reflections and put some questions out like we usually do. But um, yeah, Shane, thanks so much for your time. Uh, hope to see you again sometime soon, maybe do it again. Absolutely, man. Let's do yeah. it. Keep the conversation going, and hopefully, I can get back over to Sweden sometime. Yeah, you're real good. Right. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Well, I really enjoyed listening to that interview, Chris. What was that like for you? Yeah, um, we mentioned it at the beginning, just someone that we've been influenced by and impacted by uh, and spent time listening to and reading books. And so just to kind of get him in a, I was about to say get him in a room, but get him in a screen uh, for an hour or so and just chat to him was just really helpful and like you say challenging and I mentioned it right at the beginning when I was uh, speaking to him just how it's very very hard to experience or come in contact with any of his work or his books or anything and leave the same mm. I mean 
that's not the point of anything he's doing. He's not there to give you information or to, um, yeah, help you grow in knowledge, but to do something about stuff. Or to help you feel good about yourself. No, it's exactly. Not doing that either. No. no. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was the main feeling again. Just kind of acknowledging, like, uh, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for our community? What does this mean for our local church and the global church? Um, yeah. So I mean, big questions from a s- short conversation, basically. Mm. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that stood out for you? Anything that perhaps is more relevant to you now? Because yeah, maybe yeah. we. I mean, I know that I listened to this in a different way to what I would have yeah. a few years ago. I mean, that's a natural thing. So what was it that kind of caught your attention more? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think my head naturally goes to thinking of the context that we're speaking from, um, which is in the middle of the war, the Russian invasion on Ukraine. Um, and the conversation kind of led to that towards the end of the interview. Um and it was actually something where he's talking about, um, and he, he utters the words of Jesus, um, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I had nowhere to live, did you provide me shelter? And it's actually something um, that you, you need to almost read the book, The Irresistible Revolution, to go alongside um, this point that he was making. Because he, he was basically saying that the, the Christian response is often to um, mask out or to kind of like outsource some of those things to other people. Um, and so he says uh, in the book, when I was naked, did you clothe me or did you donate clothes to the Salvation Army or yeah. s- somewhere else? Or when I was uh, had nowhere to live, did you give me a roof or did you um, or did you kind of donate money to a housing organisation or something? So, so just that challenge again, just to think, what is my personal response to? Um, bringing about peace, forging peace in time of war, um, mm. particularly when we're thinking about uh, Sweden and other European nations, hopefully welcoming in uh, many refugees, people fleeing war. Um, what does that look like for us uh, in the welcome? How do we face things head on and not try to outsource mm. stuff um, in our Christian response? Yeah. So everyday, everyday peacemakers, basically, not just responding to war, but how do we go about that beyond the context of war? Mm. Where do we make peace and where do we um, yeah, mirror the, the mission of Jesus and the, the commands of Jesus? Mm. Mm. What about you? Yeah. What stuck out? Um, well, I think I... Well, I'm reflecting a lot on what does peacemaking look like more than on a structural level, mm. um, in contrast to you perhaps just because of being a human rights lawyer and you know having studied um just war theory and all of that which is based Mm. on he mentioned it aquinas and a specific theology yeah um and yeah just reflecting on what does it mean to respond violently to violence and Mm. how should we as christians you know, where should we as Christians find ourselves? Hmm. And how should we understand, you know, uh, um, our place in this conflict? And I don't know that I necessarily have any answers. I'm just noticing in myself that I'm responding differently to this conflict than I have perhaps previously. 
Um, And so I am receiving his input as a reminder again uh, of, you know, what peacemaking can look like. Mm. Uh, Because I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of different perspectives on, on what peacemaking could look like. And it's, yeah. It's, it's just a tricky one, isn't it, when a country just gets invaded. Yeah. Um, and so I think he's bringing a really important perspective to mind. And, yeah, I want to explore that in prayer more and in reflecting more on, on kind of how can we live and work uh, with the consequences of this war as it mm. progresses. Yeah. And... Um... Yeah, I mean, Shane um, obviously speaks uh, very prophetically and uh, some of the stuff he's been is d- done is very, very big picture stuff. I mean, mm. going to Baghdad and being part of the Iraq peace team. And um, yeah, so I mean, he's kind of operating on this big level, but actually his heart and his mission and actually what he does is on the, the kind of lower community, local, everyday level. And I love that he used that word a number of times, um, everyday peacemakers. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of obviously reflecting in the project that he's doing, um, converting guns into um, garden tools, basically. So taking a symbol or not just a symbol, but a tool of death and creating a tool that cultivates life is the way he puts it. Mm. Um, and uh, how that's directly impacting the stuff that goes on around him is a really good example for us, mm. I think, about everyday peace making, um, mm. how to not just respond to the big um, fallouts of war and activate yourselves whenever there's a war, but how do we remember to be um, activists of peace in the everyday? Mm. Um, Even when this war uh, hopefully comes to an end soon, uh, how do we continue to bring about peace and forge peace in our local communities? Mm. Um, That's the the big call and the big challenge as well, Mm. moving forwards. think we'll probably start to bring it to an end but as ever we we usually leave you listeners with some questions to discuss uh, in your teams in your friendship groups and if you uh, don't have a team or well hopefully everyone's got a friendship group but uh, you can also engage with us via our social media pages um, on Facebook Um, but what questions are we putting out there today Emma? Well we always want to follow up on a podcast with what have you heard what were you challenged by what opportunities um, can you see coming from from this, or how how have you kind of like reacted or responded in your heart to what's been said? Um, and then, um, specifically when it comes to this podcast, we also want you to think about what's the equivalent of melting guns in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, he's speaking from a an American perspective. Perhaps gun violence isn't the most relevant thing in your particular community, but there will be something in your community that you could respond to somehow. Mm. So that's another reflection question. And then, what can we learn regarding community from what he's shared? So some things to ponder there. And as Chris said, do engage with us as well if you want to have a little bit of dialogue in terms of how we are thinking on our Facebook page. Yep. And thanks for today, Emma. Thank you. We'll see you on the next show. Take care.